Good morning. Um, just one quick announcement before we get started. Um, there's this Saturday at 9.30 in the Kirk, we are having a women's brunch. Um, we are going to have just a time, a low-key time of food, fellowship, worship, food, and food, and coffee. Um, so we would love for all of the women to come out. It's free. Um, you don't have to RSVP. You don't have to dress up. Just come and spend some time together on Saturday morning. So that's at 9.30 in the Kirk. All right. Um, so I know many of you, but for those of you who don't know, my name is Stephanie Formenti, and I get the wonderful privilege of working in the chapel department. Um, I've been here about a year and a half now. So it's just a joy to see all of you here. I know this is a hard time in the semester, so thank you for coming out. It's great to see the sun today, too. Um, as many of you are aware, it's March Madness, right? Yes. Uh, I, I actually love this time of year. Uh, I love the competition. I'm maybe just a little bit com- competitive myself. Um, love the competition. I love the craziness that happens. I love the stories, like the underdog stories, um, the Cinderella stories, all the surprises that come with March Madness. I actually really love March Madness. Um, I enjoy watching the games and, like, those beautiful plays. Um, but you know what I don't like to watch are those really scrappy games. You know the ones I'm talking about where there's like tons of fouls and turnovers and stupid mistakes, you know, and um, those games where the players look like they've completely forgotten the basic fundamentals of basketball. And when those games happen and the team somehow still managed to advance, you can bet they spend a lot of time on fundamentals that week before their next game. They practice passing and dribbling and free throws and rebound. Do you like my lingo? See, I know how basketball you right? Because it doesn't matter how smart, <laughs> thank you. It doesn't matter how smart your plays are if you, if you cannot execute the fundamentals, right? In some ways, I feel like this week, providentially, has been a week of practicing the fundamentals of our Christian faith. Dr. Bartholomew so helpfully talked about prayer and time with God, right? A fundamental. And today my thoughts are really similar. An attempt to bring us back to basic truths that sometimes we forget in the shuffle of everything. So would you pray with me just really quick? Lord God, be with us this morning. May your name be lifted high. Give us ears to hear. Amen. So in 2010, my husband and I had the chance to live and serve in Cape Town, South Africa. It's a really beautiful place. If you ever get a chance to go, go. Um, And we lived in this little tiny flat and directly across from a large bay called False Bay. And we would regularly, regularly walk on the beach and occasionally swim. The water was freezing, but what really deterred me was the fact that great white sharks were consistently seen swimming in the bay. In fact, are any of you fans of Nat Geo's Shark Week, right? Yeah. So you know you've actually seen these great white sharks. Nat Geo films that week in this bay, okay? So we're talking like gigantic great white sharks that leap out of the water to catch a seal. Um, that's, that was the water right across from our flat. So in False Bay, they had an entire system for dealing with these sharks. They had people employed all day, every day, 
called shark watchers, right? They would be up on the ridge with flags, and some other shark watchers would be down on the beach with flags, and when a shark was spotted, the red flags would fly, whistles would blow, and people were hurriedly escorted out of the water. It was really effective. And swimmers did not question or hesitate when they saw the flags or heard the whistles. They flew out of the water as quickly as possible. They knew their lives depended on it. But one day, while we were living there, a tourist was swimming laps in the break, just about shoulder high. A huge spark, a huge spark, huge shark was spotted, and the process ensued to get people out of the water, but this swimmer didn't hear. A shark the size of a school bus appeared behind him, and he was gone in one gulp. The lifeguards only found his swim cap and goggles. It was a sobering headline, especially because it was our beach. <laughs> and you can bet that I did not swim anymore in our beach. Um, it's not clear exactly what happened, but what is evident, what was evident, is that sometimes listening can save your life, and not listening can lead to death. This is true for us in a spiritual sense, too. Listening can bring life, and refusing to listen can lead to death. This is why the Bible is full of exhortations to hear or to listen. And for the people of God, the rescued nation of Israel, the call to hear and listen became a foundational ritual very early on, a liturgy that they literally practiced every day. On the heels of Moses delivering the Ten Commandments, as they were just confirming their identity as a nation, as they were discovering what freedom actually felt like, Moses speaks these words in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Listen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. This invitation is clear. God is calling his people to listen, to hear. And it's not instruction to simply use the auditory nerves in your ears to catch the sound waves that are coming at you, right? It's a call to take those sound waves, process them in your brain, and then obey. The Hebrew word here is shema. And it's literally one word that encapsulates two ideas, to listen and obey. In the Hebrew, listening and doing are two sides of the same coin. To shema something or someone means you give respect to the person talking to you and you do what they say. Real listening takes effort and action. This call to Shema assumes then, it assumes something, that we have someone or something to listen to, right? So what's really incredible about our truth claims as Christians is that we believe we are in a relationship with a God who actually speaks to us, right? And this has been the mode of operation for our God from the very beginning. What are the first words you find in Genesis, right? And God said, and he continues this pattern throughout the history of God's people. A burning bush to Moses, 
a nomadic, nomadic visitors to Abraham and Sarah, a wrestling match with Jacob, the prophets, even a talking donkey. God's track record would indicate that he would do almost anything to get his people to listen. But then, 400 years of silence. Not a word, not a whisper, not a peep from Israel's speaking God for, um, for four centuries. It's actually really hard for us to imagine because we have just this like thin little page separating the last words in Malachi from the first words in Matthew. But we have to understand that the silence was thick and disorienting and disconcerting. And then, 400 years later, the light breaks through. It wasn't all at once, not like an instant, you know, cloud breaking, but it was more like a sunbeam that kind of gently starts to separate the clouds, right? Redemptive history shows us that all of God's communication before Jesus was more like a whisper, growing in volume until Jesus appeared on the scene. In Jesus, God was speaking again, but not, this time not just with words or donkeys or prophets, but with the word, the word made flesh, who was born from a woman who ate and slept and laughed and grew and had parents. The word who was God in the beginning and was God, who brought us grace and truth and life and light. All the whispers are now a clear and glorious shout in Jesus. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Jesus was the word made flesh, he walked and talked with his followers and his disciples, and then he ascended into heaven, where he is getting a home ready for us. And honestly, sometimes I find myself wishing that I could hear Jesus the way that Peter or Mary heard him, right, his audible voice. But God's voice has not yet, has not once again gone silent just because Jesus is, in, is ascended, right? Actually, it's on the contrary. We now have the Holy Spirit, the Helper who teaches us all things and helps us remember all the things that Jesus said. Do you hear that? If we are the children of God, if we are in Christ, we have the Spirit living in us to interpret the words of the Word. And finally, as if that's not sufficient, we have this, right? The very breath of God, God's Word. And we know this stuff. This is not new. We are at Covenant College, right? But do you see it? Do you see the way that God so intentionally communicates with us? Because often I don't. Often I feel like I am one of those four souls stuck in the 400 years of silence. I wonder where God has gone, and I get impatient that he's not speaking to me. But here's the thing. I don't think the problem is the lack or absence of God's voice. I think the problem is with my ears which leads me to two questions. Are we even listening? And who are we listening to? The other day, I was in the middle of a disciplinary conversation with my young son. 
I was at his level, eye to eye. I was very composed and calm and patient, doing good. And then he did this. He literally put his fingers in his ears, closed his eyes, and started humming the ABCs. <clears throat> yeah. Let's just, say, let's just say that my cool and calm composure required a little more effort at that point. But Scripture provides plenty of examples of people who refused to listen to God, right? Think of Pharaoh, who did not listen to Moses, but he hardened his heart. Israel's wicked king, Rehoboam, ignored the counsel of godly men, which actually resulted in the division of the kingdom. Even God's people. The prophet Jeremiah has these really harsh words to say to the people. He says in, verse, in chapter 19, 15, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon this city and upon all its towns all the disaster that I have pronounced against it, because they have stiffened their neck, refusing to hear my words. It's pretty easy to be hard on the people of Israel, of Israel but let's be careful. How often do I find the posture of my heart literally like the posture of my son? With my fingers in my ears and my eyes closed. How often do I refuse to hear the conviction of the Holy Spirit through the word of God? How often do I stiffen my neck and insist on my way, my desires, my comfort? How about you? Are we even listening? Maybe you realize you're not. Perhaps you realize that you've been face-to-face -face with God with your fingers in your ears and your eyes closed. Or maybe you sense your neck stiffening or your fists tightening. Here's some good news. God is not afraid or tempted to leave you when you refuse to listen. Instead, he is near, ever communicating, drawing you into repentance and surrender. And when we finally decide to listen, he is there to embrace us. The second question I asked, though, is probably where most of us find ourselves. If we are listening, who are we listening to? Or for you English majors, to whom are we listening? Once again, the biblical narrative provides us with a multitude of examples of those who heeded the wrong thing, right? Adam and Eve listened to the serpent. Abraham listened to Sarah's alternative plan for a son. Jacob listened to his mother's deceitful idea to get the family blessing. Joseph's brothers listened to Judah's suggestion to sell him to Egypt, Egyptian traders. Or there's those described in, first Tim, in 2 Timothy 4, who will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Because here's the truth of the matter. There is a lot of noise around us all the time. Dr. Whitebrook talks a lot about our visual archives, right? How the images we see file into an archive that inform our beliefs. Similarly, I believe that we have an audio archive, voices in our head that work to shape our worldview and our behavior. We have pieced together sound bites to create narratives that tell us what is right and acceptable beautiful or attractive. Those narratives advise our loves and our priorities, they even our identity to some degree. Think about it. How often do you hear the voices of your parents in your head? Maybe not as much as you should, <laughs> but 
We do, right? We hear their hopes for us or their expectations of us or their wisdom to us. Or maybe your audio archives include your youth pastor or your mentor or the author of the book you just read or your professors. And those are usually really helpful voices. But the truth is, sometimes the loudest noises, the clearest voices, are not helpful, wise, or true. Instead, they distract us and derail us and ultimately enslave us. And one message is especially deadly. It's in the slogans, it's in the shows, it's in the music, it's demonstrated in the lives of those esteemed as heroes and leaders, and it's as old as time itself. The message is, it's all about you. You're worth it. Look out for number one. Reach for the stars. Follow your dreams. You, you, you. If it doesn't make you happy, avoid it. If it is uncomfortable for you, do something else. If you don't like it, ignore it. If it's hard, run away. If it costs you something, forget it. If it doesn't help you achieve your goals, it's not worth your time. But the problem with this voice is that it requires our worship and ultimately our lives. It's like that swimmer in the waves in South Africa. We swim along in our little world, doing what feels good, worshiping our comfort and our pleasure, and giving in to our desires and whims, totally unaware that there is a gigantic shark right behind us, ready to eat us alive. We listen to those things that support our idols, the teaching that tickles our ears, the leaders who inspire us in our endless quest for self-promotion. But those waters are dangerous. The gospel hope here, though, is that Jesus is calling. And he does more than just wave red flags from the ridge. He actually dove into the water and pulled us to safety. And then, in his love, he continues to hold us back when we want to self-sabotage and dive back into shark-infested waters. He is calling, and his message is this. If you really want to live, and not just live, but flourish, you must first die to yourself. Jesus says that if you want to be first, you must be last. That childlike faith inherits the kingdom. That the peacemakers are the sons and daughters of God. Jesus teaches us that the pure in heart are the ones who see God, and that those who are actually persecuted and reviled have great reason to rejoice. Jesus' message is upside down, but it is true, and it is the way to true flourishing. So what does it look like to listen to the voice of Jesus? How can we discern it in the midst of all the racket around us? I wish I had a groundbreaking answer to give you, but the Bible does teach us it's back to the basics, right? So hold on tight. Here's the answer. (laughs) The word of God in prayer. In John's account of the resurrection, we read that Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early Easter morning. She saw that the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty, and she started to weep at the entrance to the tomb. And then a man appears behind her, and asks her why she is weeping. Thinking it, was the, thinking it was the gardener, Mary asks him about the body of Jesus. The text is beautiful at this point because it tells us that next, Jesus simply says her name, Mary. And she immediately recognizes him. 
She knew Jesus when he said her name because he had said her name hundreds of times. And no one said her name the way that he did. She knew Jesus when he called her back into relationship, into friendship, because she had spent so much time with him. That's it, really, isn't it? To hear the voice of Jesus, we have to know what it sounds like. And to know what it sounds like, we have to spend time with him in the word and in prayer. Like sheep that spend every day in the presence of their shepherd, when we know how Jesus sounds, the kinds of things he says, the way he calls our name, we will shema, hear the voice of our shepherd and follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for being the God who not only speaks, but who also always hears and acts when we pray, when we pray to you. Thank you, Jesus, for calling us out of darkness into light. And please, Lord, through the work of your Holy Spirit, help us to have ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.